Um, let me pray for us as we uh, look at those two, two chapters together. Father, this Pentecost Sunday, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written for our good. And so we pray now, would he come and open our blind eyes, break and soften our hard hearts, that we might hear what you are saying to us. In his name we pray, amen. We said in week one of this Numbers series that this is all part of a wider narrative. There's something that has gone on before and this is the continuation of it. Do you remember what that thing that's gone on before is? The Lord has promised to a man called Abraham um, that he would make Abraham into a great nation. That great nation would be a blessing to all nations and that he would give them a land to live in. And so this story is them getting to the land that he has promised to Abraham. It was to be a land of blessing, a land of plenty, a land of rest from journeying, a land of rest from enemies. And so we reach Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2, and we should think, yes, journey done. Do you see, 13.1, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. That, that ought to be the end of the book. That should be it. Triumph, rejoicing, rest, happily ever after. At least now it's just a question of blessing the nations because they've got the people and they've got the land. Just a question of being a blessing to the world, but, but we know it's not the case. It's a disaster. And yet, once again, we see it's fundamentally a mirror on us and our hearts. I think we'll see in these two chapters this morning that there's this, this distinction at the heart of the chapters as to what we do with problems. What do we do when we're faced with a problem? These chapters ask us, what are you looking at? Do you focus on the problem or... Or do you focus on your God? Because the problem might be scary and you might be out of your depth and it might be hard work. But you do have a God who's with you. Let's have a look. The foundational thing to start off with, we've seen it in previous weeks, but I want to bring it out again, is we have a God who makes promises. Do You see, he has promised his people this land and they are on the edge of that land, and so the spies go out. Um, just a few of them, small numbers to stay under the radar. Uh, one from each tribe, as a representative of each tribe. Trying to work out not if to enter the land, but something of how to enter the land. So verse 18, see what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns? Are they unwalled or fortified? What's the soil like? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Trees or not? Bring back some fruit, because it was the season for grapes. It's, it's a reconnaissance mission. It's simplified, but essentially, if you look on the screen, they, they travel from, from south to north for 40 days, checking out the area. And you see, the journey is, is loaded with language to help us remember the promises of God. There are little clues in there, little dots for us to join, as it's described, reminding us of God's faithfulness. So have a look at verse 22, for example. 
the naming of Hebron, I think is very deliberate. So they went up through the Negev, came to Hebron, where the descendants of Anak lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Why Hebron? Well, because Hebron matters to them. Hebron is Abraham language. It's the language of promise. It was near Hebron, back at the start, that God had promised Abraham the land. It was from Hebron that Abraham defeated a whole bunch of kings back in Genesis. It was, it was near Hebron that he acquired a patch of land. That his wife Sarah was buried there. He ended up being buried there, and the patriarchs are buried there too. Hebron is a place of promise. It is loaded with anticipation. Or or we we knew it was going to be a good land because God promised it. And it is really good. Look at the description in 23. They they reached the valley of Eshkol. They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. And two of them carried it on a pole between them. Along with some pomegranates and figs. Imagine that, a bunch of grapes so big it takes two blokes to carry it on a pole. And a people who are so hungry. They've been moaning in the desert for months that they want food, they want fruit and variety and cucumbers. And and here are grapes so big it takes two blokes and a pole to bring them back. It's a glorious picture of God's blessing and his kindness. And it's almost as if they're sort of back in the garden type language as well we're meant to think about. It sounds incredible. They've arrived. And they ought to have been so excited. But what goes wrong? I think it's one simple word. It's unbelief. And maybe at that moment there's a collective sigh of relief among us in the room because we think, I'm okay. I believe in God then. At least I'm pretty sure he's there. I'm, I'm fine But I think here is where this episode bites for us. Belief in the Bible is not simply ticking a box that says, all things considered, I'm pretty sure God is there. Belief is more than that. It is trust. It is obedience to that God. And therefore, unbelief is not trusting God. It is not obeying him. Someone put it very helpfully like this. Unbelief is when you don't trust the promise-keeping God to keep his promises. And so how do we know there's unbelief? We, we don't trust. We don't obey. What does that look like for us? How might that kind of thinking creep in? Let me give you an example. This, this last week in the Steel household, some of you will know, it has been a sats week. We had Josh in year two, but we had Barney in year six as well. He's leaving primary school this summer. And so he's had these difficult SATs tests that probably you've read about in the papers or seen on TV. It's not a political statement, but you might have realised that the government decided to change the way they assess children at the end of school not so long ago. They changed the syllabus, which is a problem when it happens quite late. And so he's been cramming and learning all kinds of useful and exciting things for 10-year-olds, like modal verbs and... Um, subordinating conjunctions. It's been, it's been fun with a capital F. It really has. <laughs> now, he's had to trust his excellent teacher, Miss Davies, as she's sought to explain what these things are and how to spot them and, and what they mean and how to do well in sats. But what about this? What about if Barney is chatting in the playground to, 
to Justin, who's five. He's talking about life and SATs tests and that kind of stuff and English grammar. And, and Justin says, no, 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 that's not a subordinating conjunction, Barney. What you've got there is a prepositional phrase. You can trust me on this one. What does he do? Who does he believe? Who does he trust? What does he write in his SATs paper on Monday or Tuesday? Does he, does he trust and obey Miss Davies, qualified teacher of many years, experience, good track records, or Justin in the playground, chomping on his apple? Miss Davies. And you see, belief in God for the Christian is tied up very closely with trust and with obedience. Obedience to a God who makes promises. Now at this point, it's worth just considering what God hasn't promised us. This is important because there can be real confusion and people can get in real muddles. And it can be quite dangerous and people can become confused and disillusioned. Primarily, the promise here, and I think the primary promise in the Bible, is that God will help his people to enter the final rest that he has assured them, that he's promised them. He, he will keep us going and we will get there. He's not promised a pain-free life. He's not promised it's going to be easy or that we'll be victorious in life or, or successful always. But he's promised he will be with us and he will get us there. And so the question for each of us as we stand before this kind of God who makes these kinds of promises is, do you believe him? Because if belief is not simply a theoretical tick-the-box type thing, but a, a very practical thing, belief is seen as we trust him and we obey him, well, let's just do a bit of a, an identikit exam on these spies and see what happens when they come back from the land. They saw all that they saw, and yet the majority didn't obey. They didn't trust. Let's look at the people who don't believe. What do we see about them? Have a zoom down, particularly starting at verse 27. It is subtle, but I wonder if there's just a hint there in 27 that we should begin to get a bit twitchy as we consider these spies. Verse 27, we went into the land God has given us, but they don't say that, do they? They say, we went into the land to which you sent us. And yet when the land is spoken of in numbers, more often than not, it is the land that God has given us, the land that God swore to our ancestors. And the spies don't say that. It's as if they've forgotten God's promises. So they start off on the wrong foot. That They come back and they sound so sensible. I'm not dissing health and safety, but it's as if you can see them passive-aggressive with their clipboards. They've done their feasibility studies. They've done their risk assessments. There's Anak, probably huge, tall, enormous, giant-like people, massive there are the Amalekites, they were Israel's enemies who attacked them as they came out of Egypt, unprovoked. And the spies, they all sound so sensible, so rational, with their clipboards. 
And Caleb and Joshua bring the minority report. But, but frankly, after that, the rest of the spies just start lying. They bring a bad report, verse 32, which means a, a false report. Do you see, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. The Nephilim were an extraordinarily enormous uh, group of people cropping up a few times in the Old Testament, renowned for their size. And do you see what they did, though? That they look at the land. They don't look at the Lord. And we want to plead with them, don't look at the land. Don't look at the problems. Look at him. He's, he's promised you. He's rescued you. Don't look at them. He's provided for you every single step of the way. Look at all he's done. Look at his track records. And then we transition to chapter 14, and it's too late. That The reporters spread. There's traction. The PR stuff has worked. And all the community are on board. The, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What? You want to go back to Egypt? Back to Pharaoh? Rather than follow the Lord? Israelites, that means rejecting the whole of God's plan. What are you doing? And we ought to be shouting at them, no, no, trust him, obey him. But are we? Because isn't there something in us that resonates with what they're feeling? Don't we have a sympathy as they reach the edge of the land? To take the land will be costly. There will be blood spilt. There'll be bodies in the desert. Lies will be lost. And trust and obedience is hard, isn't it? And sometimes we think, is it worth it, really? Do you see, where the rubber hits the road, our obedience reveals something of whether we actually trust him or not. I think this is a real challenge for me. In a sense, it could be really easy to be a Christian at church. There are probably some people in this room that you quite like. There are probably some friends whom you can be honest with. And it's good to walk through life with. There's a sense of belonging. You might enjoy the singing. You might enjoy the coffee. There are two cakes for afterwards. It's a club that we can be a part of. And yet, do you see, he calls us, he calls his people to be a part of his purposes for his world. And that can be costly because making a stand at work can be costly at times. Evangelism, inviting someone to something or, or asking somebody if they'd like to read the Bible with you can be costly. Being different can be costly, particularly in our changing culture. Planting new churches is costly. We've, we've found that. Being faithful in generosity and giving is costly for us. Simply being faithful to Christ 
is costly. I said, maybe, metaphorically, we almost ask, well, can I not just hang around in the desert for a bit, really? Do I have to keep doing what the Lord asks of us? Do we have to? And at times we see he's preserved us and he's provided and, and he's kept us every single step of the way. And then at times we just forget it. And we're not quite sure if he can get us through the next step. Maybe we look to other things and we trust them instead and they become our, our saviours. It's as if we, we self-medicate and we think, well... I'm going to lean on them instead of him. At this point, he's been pretty good so far, but those things, they look a bit more sort of trustworthy. Maybe friendship will help me at this point. Maybe people around me. or Maybe stuff. or Just a new pair of shoes. That will help. That will get me through it. Or, or if I had a bit more money or a slightly better job or some more letters after my name or a better figure or just a bit more alcohol or, or some more Facebook likes... If I post that, I know people will like it and I'll feel better. Or, or the new haircut, that's bound to help. And we trust them and we obey them and we look to them and we lean on them instead of him. But friends, he is far more trustworthy than they are. He is so much more able to provide. He is so much better. He loves us so much more than those things. He sent his son to die for us. He forgave our sins. And we think a new haircut is what we need. Or a pair of shoes. To stop trusting the promise-keeping God is completely irrational. Whatever your context, whatever your temptation, whatever is calling to you, whatever you're struggling with, trust in Christ. He is better. He loves you so much more. And what does the Lord say to a people who don't trust him? This is the chilling thing in 14 verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? What does the Lord do ultimately with those people who fail to trust him, who, who refuse to believe in him? Well, they will face death. They will not enter the land that he promised. That generation will be lost forever and their children will enter instead. This was new for me as I studied this this past week though. Um, just as with last week, do you remember last week? He, he gives them what they want. They last week, they give us meat, Lord, give us meat, give us meat. He gives them meat and that is part of their judgment. Well, so here, they don't want the land, they won't have the land. 14.2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to, him, said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. And then again, 14.26-28, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard their complaints of the grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. 
In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Do you see that? That they want to die in the desert rather than get to the land. They will die in the desert rather than get to the land. The Lord takes them at their word and gives them what they want. There is a description of a people who don't believe. Let's look at the people who do. Remember, what is belief? Belief is when you trust the promise-keeping God to keep his promises. How is it seen? It's through trusting him and obeying him. I found this very helpful. One of the commentators essentially says the difference between the two reports, the majority unbelief report of the ten spies, the minority belief report of the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, is where you put the buts. So have a look with me um, at 13, 27 to 28, and we'll compare that to 14, verse 9. So 13, 27 to 28. They get back from the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, massive grapes. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Okay, so see that but, start of verse 28. Yes, it's amazing, but. Now have a look at 14 verse 9. The minority report, Joshua and Caleb, only do not rebel against the Lord, do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. It's an amazing land, but the people are massive, versus it's an amazing land, but we have the Lord. He is with us. And so as we, begin, as we began, the question is, where are you looking? What are you looking at when problems come your way? And the people are giants, and of course they're afraid, and of course their knees are knocking. Our problem is we focus on the giants, and they keep us up at night, and they stress us out, and we can't let go of them, and we're like the ten spies. And so you know that situation in your heart, whatever it is, or in your diary, or in your world at the moment, that thing that makes you feel overwhelmed. The thing that keeps you up, whether it's sickness, or broken relationships, or, or money problems, or the home house situation, or work issues, or you feel alone, isolated, or a difficult marriage, or, or exams, or, or a culture increasingly against us. We feel increasingly on the minority, or, or the American presidency, or whatever it is that keeps you awake at night. Or maybe for us as a church family, filling the gaps after CCC have, have planted and gone. Maybe feeling inadequate as a church. Maybe building issues. And they feel like giants to us. They feel massive. And yet Joshua and Caleb say, look at the Lord. 
Look at him, trust him, remember him, remember his promises, remember what he's given you so far. He's he's given you his son. Remember he's faithful, don't look elsewhere. Trust him, obey him. Giants are nothing when you look at the Lord. Wouldn't it be a a brilliant thing to be a part of a church community, a church family, where we saw it as our, our joyful duty to be Joshua and Caleb's to one another. Yeah, those giants, they look pretty big. And I see why they're a bit scary. But, but don't forget who God is. Don't forget how faithful he is. I know I need that. Will you do that, will you do that for me? I'll try and do it for you. Whatever the giant, we have a God who is able. And so we can trust him in the midst of whatever it is. And yet, where does that leave us at the end of these chapters? What about the next generation? Well, to finish up, I want you to see that we end up with a God who keeps promises. So what have we seen? We've seen he makes promises, and then we get these two reports coming back from the spies, the the majority, very sensible, unbelief report, dealing with all the issues and the problems, didn't trust God. And then the minority report, just Joshua and Caleb, who did trust God. Now before we move on, we must deal with 14 verses 12 to 19. It's it's so tempting as a preacher to say, well, we're running out of time, so let's just scoot over that bit. But we mustn't do that. It's a slightly thorny bit. We touched on some similar issues last time. God is really angry with his people because they say they want to go back to Egypt. They, They want to trust Pharaoh rather than the Lord's. Let me read 12 onwards. God says to Moses, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, hang on. Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. If if you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who heard this report about you will say, well, the Lord wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt till now. Does God really want to get the tipex out? And to scrub all those names out apart from Moses. It's not the first time he said this kind of stuff. Back at the golden calf incident, Exodus 32, we get something very similar going on. Similar language, similar ideas, similar mediation from Moses again. I think the big question there, as it is here, is to, to ask, why didn't God just do it? 
Why does he talk to Moses about it? Why does he start this conversation with Moses here? And I think that helps us see what's really going on. It's as if he is coaxing Moses to mediate on behalf of his people so that they might be spared. And Moses each time does just that. And our minds will never quite grasp how it works. Where you've got a sovereign God and you've got a people who pray and he weaves his obedient people's prayers into his sovereign plans and purposes. It's a mystery in a sense, but it doesn't mean we don't pray. And so Moses prays, and he prays for them on two fronts. 13 to 16, he prays in light of God's glory. Essentially, what will the Egyptians say? What will it mean for a watching world, Lord, if, if, you, if you blot them all out? Your glory will be diminished among the nations. And then 17 to 19, he, he prays in light of God's mercy as well. He, he quotes God's own description of himself back at him from Exodus 34. Slow to anger, abounding love, forgiving sin and rebellion. They're a great model for us in our prayers. We will pray some of those things in a bit as we finish. Praying for his glory. Praying in light of his mercy. But it's a prayer too that should lead us to Christ. Do you see, it's not our obedience which rescues us or gives us a relationship with the Lord. It is Christ's. And so we see God's glory and God's mercy fully manifest at the cross in, in the Lord Jesus. It's a prayer that should make us profoundly thankful for Jesus' obedience on our behalf, for his death in our place. Before we finish in Numbers, I just want you to have a sneaky peek at the start of chapter 15, um, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land I am giving you as a home, dot, 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 do you see that? that? This generation may get what they want. They may die in the wilderness. The next generation will enter there. It does happen. It will happen. God keeps his promises. We can have assurance that he is good. But as we finish, I want us to flick ahead to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 verses 12 to 14. We're jumping out of numbers and we're seeing something of the New Testament commentary on these accounts. I think the writer to the Hebrews uses some of these very stories, these very mistakes in the wilderness to warn us against turning away. Against unbelief. Against not trusting. Against disobedience. So Hebrews 3 and verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. The writer to the Hebrews says to us, Morden Road Church, keep 
trusting him, keep obeying him, encourage one another daily towards Christ to trust him and obey him. And when we're tempted to to see the giants as too big and too scary and the journey is too hard, remember your Father in heaven. Remember that he can provide exactly what you need. And he loves you and he's, he's given us his son. And if he gave us his son, if his son even dies in our place and is raised again for us, cleanses us, securing our salvation, if he is the firstborn from among the dead, if he is the first fruits of the new creation, he will finally bring us home to be with him. And so keep holding on to him and trusting him and obeying him. Keep believing in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we finish these chapters so profoundly thankful for the Lord Jesus. We see our hearts, we see that they wander. We see that we find it easy to trust in other things. We, we see the temptation to, to despair. We see giants. I think it means the end or think we need to trust something else. And we forget how incredible you are. We forget your provision for a people like us. Help us please to trust Christ. Help us to be a church a church family that points one another to Christ. Might we encourage one another daily to trust him. And we pray these things for our goods, but we pray them for your glory too. That a watching world might see your faithfulness. They might see that you are a God who is, who is slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who forgives sin and rebellion. Keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we pray. In his name. Amen.